There are moments in life that test you. And there's a reason that people of color need to overcome adversities and therefore be resilient. If you are consistently asked a question to which your answer is unsatisfactory, such as where are you from, well, for that person, it may be the first time that they're asking that question. But for that person of color, it may be the 100th or the millionth. Why is it so hard for us to take others at face value, whatever they say, however they identify? Why do we constantly need to dig to satisfy our curiosity? Because that's what we are doing. We need to satisfy where our curiosity takes us. And what we are really asking is, why don't you look like me? And are you sure you belong? This week, I'm speaking to Lillian Pang, Director of Filmmakers of Color, a Montreal-based nonprofit that supports and that supports and promotes women and non-binary folk of color filmmakers. We talk about family, living between two cultures, and finding community in a homogenous industry through representation. My name is Jessie Santana, and I'm an organizational culture strategist, entrepreneur, and mother. This is a Way We Work podcast where we discuss all things at the intersection of knowledge-seeking curiosity, entrepreneurship, and social impact. Hey, Lily, how are you? Hello, I am good. I'm good, actually. Thank you. Well, the, I'm, I'm glad you're good. I'm hoping you're good. I guess that's like a weird thing to say these days. Like I'm doing well just because, <laughs> but it, it realistically, it's it's a good day. And not all of them have been good these days mm-hmm. just because, yeah, we're still in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Still, uh, the changing year hasn't meant much. <laughs> but uh like I know everyone was hoping you know that just like COVID would magically be lifted in 2021 Mm -hmm. but um no it's uh we're still in it yeah so (laughs) yeah yeah I I know what you mean I since since the lockdown um the curfew is at eight and Mm -hmm. I don't know what's been happening but like as soon as we see that like people aren't out on the street and and the cops are roaming around <laughs> looking yeah. for curfew breakers. Yeah. I just like start to get real tired and sleepy and I just want to go to bed. <laughs> well, you also have a child, like a young child, so I, I imagine yeah. that's, that's mo- most of the time for you. <laughs> it's like wanting well, to go to bed. <laughs> yeah, but funny enough, she's like her schedule is really weird and off and she's not She's a late sleeper and not an early riser. So I tend to go to sleep later because of her um, mm. more than I would care to go to sleep. Yeah, that. for sure. But it's still like all of us went to bed at like nine, I want to say. She went, she fell asleep at like 8.30, but like we were probably in bed by nine. Okay, that that's... <laughs> that's not that bad actually I was expecting worse because with my kids when they were that about that age they were going to bed pretty late um Mm. and I I wonder how much of that is like a cultural thing too because your husband is Chinese right yeah and I think it's and you've probably talked about this with him but I think it's more of a Chinese thing or Asian thing to go to bed late I don't know because oh yeah this is a podcast so I will have to I guess I should mention I am Chinese (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that that might help a little bit um but I think it's it's for for him it's that he doesn't want to bother her when she's sleeping like mm-hmm. I will like when we were when she was going to daycare I was like okay daycare's at nine we are always the last people to walk in like I'm okay with waking her up at mm-hmm. eight o'clock getting her ready getting yeah. her something to eat but he was like no 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 like we're paying for school it's fine like she can just come whenever she comes like it's fine (laughs) and I'm like that's also the reason why she takes three hour naps during the day because he just like lets her she he doesn't want to bother her Mm. and the sound of her crying is like torture for him (laughs) Mm. 
Oh yeah, that that's possibly going to get him into trouble later on. <laughs> oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Cool. But I am so interested in hearing just about you, your story. I mean, you were born and raised in Montreal, and I, I'm guessing that um, you always felt like you belonged here, correct? Haha. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's um, that's my response. <laughs> I guess there's not much else to say. No, I'm kidding. Um, ooh, it's a very hard thing to explain to people um, who haven't been here that long or are just not familiar with the history, I guess, of mm-hmm. um, particularly this corner of Canada, French Canada, I guess I should say. And um, we're in Quebec. Both of us actually are in Quebec. Yes. And um, I know you've been here a couple of years. So not a super we moved long time. Here in, yeah, twenty nineteen February. I, I'm assuming you've at least gotten a sense of how. Like, have you heard of the two solitudes? Um, no. So that that was a book that was written uh, quite a while ago, but it was it was the first time anyone was really like in a, in book form trying to explore the cultural nuances of being in Quebec in this province. And, mm-hmm. you, you know, we officially we have the two languages for Canada, French and English. But uh, in Quebec, <laughs> officially, French is the only language. Mm-hmm. Um, so that already gives you some idea of like the complexity of identity, I suppose. Um, if anyone's familiar of like with, um, you know, what's going on in Belgium or like other parts of the world where you do have. Like, I know there are a lot of. um so for the majority culture here, uh, which is Francophone, uh, Francophone Canadian, uh, you know, of European descent, I, there are, there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of feelings of solidarity with movements uh, like the Scottish uh, sovereignty movement, for example, uh, the Catalan sovereignty movement as well. Mm-hmm. And so that gives you like, a, I think a sense of, the headspace that a lot of francophone people are in i mean i think it's it's less prevalent with younger people and people in mm. my generation uh, millennials and younger but who are more i guess active online they feel more part of like more connected on uh, to the international community but for older mm-hmm. people who especially those that were around in the 70s when politically uh it was a pretty uh dramatic place to be i think like there was just a lot mm. of stuff going on um, and there was like the FLQ and everything. I know. So my grandparents, basically they came here. Gosh. Okay. Yeah. So this is like the immigration story of my family. So in a nutshell, I'll try <laughs> to keep it short, but my grandparents came from Taiwan in the sixties and my mom was born in Taiwan, but she came here and she was pretty young. She was like nine or 10. And so she feels very Canadian. Mm -hmm. My dad came when he was 18 for university and he doesn't feel (laughs) Canadian. I think because he came later. So he's very, his mindset is very much like he never left, like his heart was left in Hong Kong, I think. And so he always wanted to go back to Asia and he's, he did go back eventually actually while Mm -hmm. I was a teenager. So I def, I grew up with a kind of like in a typical sort of like second generation household of, like feeling the tug of different cultures. Um, and I imagine yeah. this is something you can relate to as well, because. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> you know, you just like, like multilingual household, but also, um, you know, I guess never feeling like you have both feet in one place. Yeah. Even though I was born here. For Yeah. Yeah. For us, we, um, my dad always said that we're inside the house, we're Dominican, but outside the house, we're American. Mm. Yeah, that's very familiar. Uh, like the the different worlds, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the. But I always felt like I was, um, even when I went back to the American public and would visit, they'd be like, "Oh, your your Spanish is so like American now," <laughs> or yeah. Um, it when I would go back, if I would speak Spanish the way I know how to speak Spanish, which is a very Dominican esque vibe. Um, which is very different than the normal Latin American or or Mexican Spanish. 
but because I grew up in Las Vegas, a lot of people just assumed that I was Mexican. And that also made me not want to speak Spanish outside in public. I feel like, I feel like Chinese people like here in North America, we are the equivalent of like Mexicans for Latin Americans, <laughs> for Latinx communities. Mm-hmm. Cause I think every, like when, when we meet, I guess the assumption is that when you encounter a Latinx person, it's like, Oh, they must be Mexican. Right. If this person, mm-hmm. well, the person is like not very, uh, cultured I suppose or uh is ignorant to be blunt but Mm. you know that and I think that happens a lot you know in my case it just tends to be correct when people are like oh are you Chinese and it's like well yeah I mean ethnically I am but uh I imagine it's pretty annoying for non-Chinese East Asians yeah I mean even during uh especially at the beginning of COVID Mm. all of those horrible uh people who were attacking anyone that seemed Asian. Yeah, um, and Chinese businesses in Chinatown, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think we're going to be seeing that for a while too, like just because of uh, the ravages of COVID and there are definitely some mm-hmm. some peeps out there um, who want someone to blame, I suppose, and want to put a face yeah. on it. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's not, not a very uplifting topic. <laughs> no but it's it's the reality i mean even my husband who i mean he was born and raised in china canada is actually the first place he's ever lived outside of china Mm -hmm. um and he started wearing sunglasses like tinted sunglasses just because he like it's the first time he's ever not been a part of the majority and experienced discrimination like in his face oh my god not that we encountered anything horrible but just like he could feel that people were looking at him differently. Oh my goodness. That's wow. That's, that's uh for me, that's a mind bender because I have no idea what that's like. <laughs> like, I mean, I don't know what it's like <laughs> to go from being a majority because I've never been a majority. Yeah. But exactly. it's, it's mind blowing to me, but I imagine for him, it's uh, also like a head trip because he's never had to really confront it in that way, I guess. Right. Until now. Yeah, exactly. I think that even for us, I always considered him like my safe space because he never, I never had to have these discussions. Mm. But in actuality, I feel like because he's starting to sort of understand what discrimination actually feels like, as opposed to just thinking of it theoretically, um, it's opened us up for a lot of very deep, intimate discussions. Oh, nice. I think that's great yeah. in a way. I mean, I know it's kind of sad too, but um, it means yeah. you can just, I get, I guess, like get to another level of intimacy in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, COVID, that's, I mean, we don't really have a lot of other people to talk to. So yeah. <laughs> it kind of forced us to really, I mean, it could have gone one of two ways because I've heard lots of people got, have gotten divorced mm-hmm. because yeah. of COVID. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, for us, it's really just, you know, it's forced us to sit with ourselves and really just work through it and have really deep discussions that I'm like, I feel like I'm relearning or maybe for the first time learning who he is and what he thinks about. Mm. And we've been together for years. So so would you go as far as to say it's kind of romantic? <laughs> Um, I mean, we have exchanged date nights for our, you know, once or twice a week grocery walk. <laughs> uh, okay, nice. Um, just because that's the only time that he and I are ever alone. Mm-hmm. So our walks to the grocery store are kind of like the time where we can, you know, just talk to each other without having to worry about grandmother or <laughs> baby. Yeah. Oh, that's so... I mean, it's nice in a way. <laughs> it's also kind of ridiculous. I understand. Because it's an errand, right? But yeah. there's nowhere else you could go, though, right now, too. Just because, like, restaurants are not, like, sit-down restaurants are not mm-hmm. open. And yeah. Exactly. So, like, where would you go? And yeah. yeah, like, he's also super paranoid. So he's very, like, he doesn't really like ordering food out. And he's, like always afraid in case anything might transpire if he was to ever receive a package like he leaves it by the door he doesn't bring it into the house he 
he wears his gloves and his his mask when he receives anything he's like very diligent a lot more than i that's good i mean these are these are kind of terrifying times it's just that it's been so drawn out (laughs) i think that we're like yeah we're like it's like fatigue with the terror (laughs) yeah well but the thing is the i think the thing that's reignited it for me is actually my family Mm. all of my family in vegas they just got covid (gasps) oh no sorry Um, yeah and i it was like everyone there i have two younger sisters and my parents and everyone reacted differently like my mom is still struggling with it um but it's just it was just it's so weird how something that you know it's the same thing that that has hit everybody but you know so many people have died from it but then at the same time so many people have had just different experiences with it itself for sure um gosh yeah my my extended family uh they just well he passed away recently too because of covid and so that was the first time Mm. and it really felt i don't want to say real because it's always been real but it felt like really close to home and Mm -hmm. uh it's just it's just so frustrating because we we are like there is the vaccine like we know there's a vaccine and Mm -hmm. it i don't know it just doesn't feel like there's enough uh, of a collective unity in the response to the pandemic as well among people like just ordinary people it still feels like a yeah. lot of people are just kind of doing their own thing and not really taking it seriously exactly and i feel like until they do have that personal i mean but even so like i like i know people especially back in the u.s that have had it and are like oh it was just a heavy cold and you know continue to propagate this bizarre reaction like you said of like like they should know better because they actually went through it and so many people have died especially in the yeah. u.s but it's still very much like oh well for me it was just like a heavy cold and i was fine but i was out for two weeks because it was you know i was still affected but then not wanting to wear a mask or you know take proper precautions is still a thing yeah yeah i think so particularly uh since we are going on you know a year soon of being in a kind of like on and off lockdown quarantine period Mm -hmm. i do think people are getting a bit there are some people out there i think who are just kind of tired of it i guess and are probably not being as careful even with the get together part yeah i think they're kind of pushing the boundaries there or because they're just so like it's it's just so complicated and i think a lot of it has to do with just like not everyone being on the same page but uh yeah well i think even for like those gatherings are the places where like most covid yeah. is coming from yeah. now yeah and you know i mean i miss my family too but i uh i'm not going to break i mean the law and cross the border to go see them but I also if they were in the same country I wouldn't I I think I could hold my own and and say that I would not want to endanger like I know for a fact that it's my family was not being as careful as they should have been um especially in those small family gatherings Mm. um but it's you know I mean hopefully they recover quickly but um I, I don't know. <laughs> it's like you, it's like, like walking barefoot outside in the snow. Like, you know, it's cold. So why don't you wear shoes? I mean, like you said, I think it's when you j- haven't experienced it in a very concrete way, like someone, you know, actually getting really sick or, you know, passing away even. I, I think it's still pretty abstract for a lot of people. You know, because mm-hmm. they just, they're like, well, I don't see it, right? So I'm just being told it's its this serious thing that I need to take seriously, but I don't really know anyone who's who's passed away. So I, I think there's that, there's something happening in their mind where 
I guess it's related to like a kind of denial too, I suppose. Yeah. Well, even for, for us, I think for my, my extended family, especially in New York, a lot of them were affected and did pass at the beginning mm-hmm. of COVID. So it's been almost yeah. a year. And so for them, it still seems like so far removed, so far away. And I will have to admit that there's a religious mm, angle okay. that, you know, it's in God's hands. You know, if he does what he will, his will be done. Yeah. And I just, I mean, I always thought that God wanted us to, you know, take care of ourselves yeah. <laughs> before we just let him do what yeah. he pleases. Uh, so there's, I'm, I'm having a little bit of, uh, I, I don't even know if it's just like, um, a little fault in the understanding of the the reality of their situation because it's not mine I mean we don't have nearly as many cases I mean even though we do here in Quebec have more than the rest of Canada um, nice. <laughs> but it's not nearly number enough one. as the rest of the U.S. <laughs> well number one in Canada yeah. but like a hundred times less than the yeah, U.S. Well. We also have less of a population, though, like a tenth of the population. So. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but moving on to bit better and bigger <laughs> things, let's talk about <laughs> the reason we connected um, and the amazing work that you're doing, which I'm, like, such a huge fan of. I love this this nonprofit that you're building. <laughs> I I do. Like, I just, I mean, I wish that I knew how to make movies and like knew how to tell stories in that way. Me too. I mean, <laughs> I don't have the skills. <laughs> if somebody was able to like record everything that I say and just do the work, I'd be like good as gold. <laughs> I, well, have you ever actually, have you acted though? Cause I, I get, I'm getting like an actor vibe from you or maybe you dabbled because you have a very nice voice. Like, I'm not just saying that, but you have like, a very pleasant Well, I, I appreciate it. Which is good, because you're doing a podcast. <laughs> I... <laughs> so, I used to um, hate my voice, because I remember in middle school, I called my friend Natasha, I remember, and her mother thought that I was a serial killer oh, no. calling on the phone, because I was like, Natasha, I know you're in the in the house. Why don't you call me? Oh, Pick no. up the phone. <laughs> Um, but I did, um, when I was in high school and in college, I used to do ah. musical theater. I'm a ah. dancer, not, uh, not a singer, but, um, yeah, I think I've, I've, I've grown into my voice though. So. Well, yeah, like I said, that's a good thing. Cause you, you are doing a podcast, so <laughs> it would be rather tragic yes. if, uh, you know, your voice was really screechy and unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> No, I um I have always had everyone in my family says that I have just a really low energy voice, but I have found that you just have to find what you're capable of doing and willing to do. Um I currently am a salonier for an app called Yoni Circle where I hold heal- it's basically healing circles for women. And I've had a lot of positive feedback on my mm. meditation. Because my voice is very nice. soothing. <laughs> oh. Yes. So thank you <laughs> for the compliment. You're welcome. <laughs> um, but, but tell me, so how did, how did this all like start? Um, so I guess I'll, I'll start from the beginning. Um, it, it was actually not that long ago <laughs> that it started. Uh, let's see. Origin story. Okay. So Filmmakers of Color is the nonprofit that I founded uh, in 2019 because I was trying to, so I've, I've worked in advertising for like nearly a decade, uh, just online advertising. And if for anyone who's worked in advertising, uh, they know that it, it's not the most nourishing, <laughs> like it, creatively nourishing um, <laughs> industries to work in because, you know, you're beholden to clients mm-hmm. and, a lot of clients have opinions uh, about the way things should look and sound, uh, you know, with the commissions, even if they don't have creative uh, experience themselves and that's not their field of expertise. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, everyone's got an opinion. Everyone's like a writer. 
Um, so yeah. it, it can be pretty frustrating from a creative standpoint. Um, so I just decided to kind of, you know, especially, so this was pre, yeah, this was pre-COVID obviously, but um, I wanted to meet like-minded women who were interested in films because I've always loved films. I've always loved TV. I've just, like, I, it always, I always had strong emotional responses to visual content um, and going to the cinema and just like talking mm. about movies and thinking about movies. So I kind of, I got to a point where I was like, well, why can't I just like, you know, I don't know, maybe like dabble, see if I can collaborate with someone potentially because I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, I didn't go to film school. I went, I, you know, I have a degree <laughs> in art history. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, I was looking around for, I, I knew I wanted to meet up with women specifically. And I guess I couldn't mm -hmm. really articulate exactly why, but I, I just knew that I didn't really want to, I didn't want to be in a male dominated room because I know what that's like as most women do. And I feel like when, you know, there's a room with mostly dudes, the women's voices do tend to become more muted. I think it's just mm -hmm. like, I, I'm sure there are people that would argue with me on this one, but I mean, it, it's just from my experience. Um, because we tend to be the minority in a lot of spaces as well, in a lot of industries. So I knew I wanted to be in like a, a women-centered space. And I, I went online and I looked for local like Facebook groups, associations, and there are some, not a ton, but there are like, you know, a couple of women's film festivals, um, some groups on Facebook, as I mentioned. And so I, you know, started to kind of investigate and I noticed that a lot of the photos where you would see the members, you know, I didn't see, <laughs> to be frank, I didn't see a lot of diversity. And, mm. you know, I'd noticed like, oh, there's like one, there's like a black girl here, you know, here and there, like maybe like one, you know, or two at most. Yeah. And I was, I was wondering, like, I guess I had an inkling that maybe there were more people like me who are not white women who are interested in movies and who are movie geeks and who just want to get together and even if mm -hmm. it's not someone who wants to be a filmmaker maybe just people who love film so I started this meetup group on meetup.com and I didn't expect anyone to show up to be honest because I just I don't know <laughs> I think it's always good to have like to manage your expectations and mm -hmm. I actually did it in my backyard <laughs> the first one because <laughs> I have a big backyard and uh, my boyfriend <laughs> made a bunch of like all doves and it was it was very casual and, and relaxed but I was also you know I, I was I was assuming that maybe like if I was lucky like one person would show up and you know a few women showed up and it was still a very small group but I was surprised you know that uh so many more many more women than I expected had actually joined the meetup group itself so the first meetup not a lot showed up but mm. um then I quickly learned from other women who are on meetup and do their own groups and are part of other groups that it is hard to get people to come out in person. And so you, yeah. you should just like assume that if you're lucky, a third of the people, I think that was the, the figure that she gave about a third of the people that sign up to an event will come. So I was, I was still pretty happy. I was mm. pretty happy that like anyone came to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's the benefit of low expectations and so it was just really cool to meet other women and then you know kind of steadily grew from there still pretty small groups but the benefit of that was they all felt very intimate these meetups and so we'd go and watch a film mm -hmm. together always a film by a filmmaker of color a woman I should say filmmaker of color and or we would just uh, get together and, and hang out and talk in a cafe. And one of the filmmakers that we, that I connected with really, really early on through a friend is Liz Singh, who's a Montreal based independent filmmaker. And she suggested to me, why don't you offer workshops for people? You know, because it sounds like everyone's mm. pretty new to the game and, and would probably benefit from skill sharing. And so mm -hmm. uh, we did our first workshop with her, actually, because <laughs> I was like, great, can you do it? <laughs> the first one. <laughs> and 
that essentially <laughs> became my role, you know, was to beg, <laughs> beg, you know, very, very nice ladies to, um, you know, give their time and their skills over to our, our humble group. And uh, yeah, it just kind of steadily grew from there. And then because of the pandemic, we moved everything online. So it was really nice to get together mm-hmm. in person, but being more active on Instagram and Facebook has allowed us to connect with way more people because it's not just people based in Montreal, um, which is pretty neat. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I've done some IG lives, especially in the earlier part of the pandemic. Uh, and, you know, not all of the filmmakers are based in Montreal that we did the workshops, the online workshops we did. Um, we call them like mini classes because they're like, I tried to model them as a kind of masterclass interview hybrid, but they were only an hour long because of the Instagram um, time limit. And yeah. of course, the idea was to offer everything for free and just like have the thing, have the nonprofit morph into something that would suit different people's needs, like a community's needs, but also be shaped by the ideas and suggestions of the community. So we also have, uh, up to this point, uh, managed to arrange uh, about three mentorships as well. So that means like in-person, yeah, like in-person, you know, shadowing someone on set which is pretty cool. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And the best way to learn, right? <laughs> as well, one could argue. And, um, yeah, but yeah. also like uh, screenwriting as well. Uh, I found a very generous local filmmaker, Miriam Schall, who is, um, she's, she's amazing. She's actually, she does directing, cinematography, writing, like she, editing. She does it all. She's a real um, Jackie of all trades, mm-hmm. I guess you could say. And, she uh, mm-hmm. she very kindly agreed to read the scripts for a bunch of our members and, and give them feedback, which is also extremely useful when you're trying to become a decent screenwriter. So, yeah, I just yeah. felt like, you know, and I've spoken to women in the group who went to film school. Like, I guess we wanted to provide a kind of alternative film school because a lot of these spaces are very male. They're very white. And that includes the faculty as well. Like, Yes. What I've been learning more and more as I've been, you know, diving deeper into the the film industry and just like listening to podcasts and reading books and articles and talking to people who are in and out of the industry is there isn't enough diversity across the board as with many industries. Like there mm-hmm. aren't enough uh, teachers, like professors of color in film schools, uh, film departments. There isn't enough diversity in film criticism as well that's one that a lot of people don't think about but all of these aspects they do shape the industry they do shape like output so absolutely you know diversity is one of those words that i I think it gets on a lot of people's nerves but uh i do think (laughs) representation matters uh, and i know that's an overused phrase in a lot of circles but it does it does matter and Mm -hmm. I didn't have anyone growing up that I could look up to in the industry where I could be like, Oh, cool. Like that person looks like me or looks like someone in my family. And mm-hmm. I, I do think that affects children. And it's that that's why it took me so long to realize yes. I wanted to even try my own hand at like making short films because I, ne- I can never imagine myself in the position as a filmmaker, you know, let alone in front of the camera. That's, that's a whole other thing, but especially behind the camera, there's mm-hmm. still, uh, I think, an incredible lack of diversity, um, at least in Canada. Um, and I imagine the U.S. is not not that different either because um, culturally we're very similar, right? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I do think that you're absolutely right that representation does matter, even if it's for, not just for the people that are learning and going through the school, but also for those that are you know, seeing their work on on films and looking at the credits. Is I think it makes important. a huge difference, especially, like, it sounds very um, idealistic, I suppose, or romantic, but I always love the idea of 
some kid somewhere, <laughs> some kid, you know, um, <laughs> like a person of color, a little person of color who's just, you know, like going, I don't know, who, yeah, goes to see a movie. And like you said, there's like the credit roll and seeing a name like, oh, like that, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't sound like a typical name um, that you would see in a credit roll or, and then maybe Googling the person and then seeing what they look like or having that person, you know, visit their school or whatever, yeah. or seeing an interview on uh, YouTube. And I, I do think it definitely plants a seed in the minds of young mm-hmm. people where they're, they can definitely like they can easily or more easily imagine themselves in roles like that. Um, Absolutely. And the most exciting thing is having your name on the credits because my husband in video games, when he first got his name in the official credit, not like as an outsourcer, but on the actual game, he took a screenshot and sent it to me. (laughs) He was like, look at my name. No, it's great because you, you work so hard on something too, right? So, and it's extremely yes, yes. satisfying, I imagine, to see your name um, in the credit roll. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's. Yeah. <laughs> I I hope I gave you a good idea <laughs> of how it came to fruition. Yeah, I mean, I think that even for me, um, in my academic world, like it took me a really long time to feel that I could apply for my PhD especially since I personally didn't know a lot of women or women of color that had gotten their PhD I mean I was the first Mm -hmm. in my family to get my master's and then other some other uh, a few of my cousins all women got their master's too but it's always like you don't know the ripple effect that you have in the world and the social capital that you are putting out there, especially when it comes to representation. And I feel like it's, I mean, even the, the professor that incurred, like she didn't encourage me, but she told me her experience of being in China. And I mean, her experience was that she was there. Um, she was uh, my journalism teacher and she, she was there mm. at Tiananmen Square. <laughs> wow. So maybe not a great experience. Um, but I just having like hearing the story of somebody who was not like the typical story um, and going out and reporting. Like I for I, um, I actually hosted the news at college and I, I thought that was going to be my career. I thought I was going to be a host. I was going to be on TV. I was going to do, you know, read uh, the news and enlighten people on what's going on in the world. Um, and then I, for whatever reason, it just, like, I got in trouble actually at the news station for wearing a top that it wasn't even low. It was just, um, I'm not like a small, well trusted girl. Yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> and so they wanted to like kick me off air mm-hmm. because of that and I mean I had grown up watching Spanish news where you know it's not uncommon mm-hmm. to see a voluptuous woman but when it came to you know English news it's very um, it's very you know I don't know like cookie cutter type um, mm-hmm. I mean besides yeah. Oprah right no, sure. <laughs> like how many other women, especially on local news, mm-hmm. like everybody seems yeah. to look the same. Um, and so I didn't have like the drive to want to pursue that as much as I thought that I had. But representation is so important. And I think that it's it's something that people don't often like, even when you said, you know, about diversity sounding annoying because everyone keeps talking about it, but. Um, I think it's it's that representation that allows not just others to feel comfortable in being like, oh, they did it, mm-hmm. so maybe I can do it too. Um, but it's just 
it it also helps with future generations because I think that if I had seen that as a child on you know whatever it is like I wanted to be an archaeologist I wanted to be the the, the Dominican Indiana Jones yeah uh, <laughs> and if I had you know if I had seen anybody if I had even if it was a movie where that was a thing um but I mean I'm no Laura Croft but it like it didn't feel the same mm. um and yeah like it like there are so many things and so many avenues that you could have gone if you only you had had an image of what you could look like in that position. Totally. I 100% agree that I think I would have, no, I know I would have taken a completely different path had I seen more women, particularly who looked like me, uh, just like doing the thing Mm -hmm. and being out there because yeah, like even the whole thing when I said you know there are people that are annoyed with the word I, <laughs> I mean we're talking about like specific people <laughs> like certain certain people I don't need to say <laughs> who but you know they they are more I think they tend yes. to be more annoyed by diversity talk if, we're, if we can call it that um, and representation talk because they just don't get it or like it's hard for them to imagine because they mm-hmm. are so used to seeing people who look like them sound like them you know have similar names to them like in everywhere right and Mm -hmm. I think all they have to do is just like imagine what it would have been like to not see anyone imagine like not seeing any I guess it would I guess it would be easier for some people to understand if they know what it's like like even just traveling right going somewhere where you're not the majority like physically and I think mm-hmm. even just that experience can be life-changing for people. And, you know, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I do think, I think it's a pretty essential experience most people should have, at least at some point in their lives, the experience of being othered. Yeah, well, but the thing is, with that is, if they actually take the experience and acknowledge it and digest it for what it what the experience is because I feel like a lot of people could have that experience or have had that experience and then they go back mm-hmm. to their normal life and oh they just mm-hmm. they just remember the the niceties of you know having spent however mm-hmm. long at a resort and not having acknowledged the fact that they had to drive 10 miles through poverty to get there um no I wouldn't even recommend I, I just wouldn't recommend resorts <laughs> just because I've, I've been, I've been to, one. Uh, I've been to and it was never, mm. it was never my choice to go. <laughs> it was always for like a family. Uh, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this at some point, maybe. Uh, but it, it was definitely, it's definitely not my preferred. <laughs> I guess I'm not trying to knock it. Cause I'm sure there, well, there are a lot of people who enjoy them, but and there are different ways to travel, but if you're if you're trying to get a real sense of a place, a resort is probably not a good place to start. Um, and yeah, the most yeah. I remember the most enjoyable experience about that was was breaking away from the resort um, and just like going off off course and doing our own thing, and then getting to actually meet people um, outside of a context of them serving you. Uh, so yeah, that's not, mm. <laughs> that's probably not the best way to experience like being immersed <laughs> in another culture or even just like the, the whole fish out of water experience. Cause it's so like, there's so much comfort built in and catering to mm. like, like for example, uh, resorts in the Caribbean, right? It's so much catering to like the North American mainstream sensibility of what comfort is and luxury that, yeah, it's mm-hmm. not. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. It's a bit of a tangent, but um, <laughs> it's funny because I'm thinking about the whole representation thing too. Having something like this now, there is a kind of momentum, I would say. I don't know if you feel that as well, but be- because of everything that's happening and because people are having more and more tough conversations in a very public way, it's, it's kind of an interesting moment to be doing something like filmmakers of color. I, I do agree. I think that um, I 
I think it has to do with the fact that we are living in this moment where, you know, we physically can't do a lot mm. of what we used to distract ourselves with. And we are, you know, we're having to live our life through our computers or technology. And it's, it's also streamlining our, you know, mm. our attention in a way, um, whether we want it to or not. And I feel like I'm hopeful, yes, but I also am reserved in calling this, you know, like a great moment only because my biggest fear is that we'll, we'll you know, we'll roll out the vaccine and everything will be hunky-dory again. And then we'll just go back to the status quo. Well, I guess what I'm curious about too is, <laughs> okay, so what I'm curious about is how how interested are white people going to be in something like Black Lives Matter when the pandemic mm. is finally over? Because mm-hmm. I, and I, I'm, you know, again, like I can't, obviously I can't speak for all white people. I can't speak for any, but they, I imagine there's more, there's been more interest because there's, like you said, there's been more time, right? And people haven't been able to mm-hmm. distract themselves as easily or ignore things as easily. And yeah, I, I wonder how much in, yeah, genuine, genuine interest there will be in the movement and all its implications once like you said like things kind of well quote unquote go back to normal i guess and because you know i mean yeah. go ahead i mean i go ahead oh i was just gonna say the the only reason that i feel that way um is because i've actually had a recent conversation with certain people um you know last year when everything happened we had all of these companies release statements yeah. and all of these people say they were going to do things. And I was even um, put on a short list for um, an mm-hmm. inclusion consultant role. And then I reached out again and was like, hey, you know, what's going on? I just wanted to know what's what's up. And I was informed that, unfortunately, they were they had put a pause mm. on all diversity and inclusion initiatives. And they were still debating on how to restructure um i feel like that is i mean it's you know it's quarter one everybody normally at this time is probably still trying to Mm. figure out their long game for the year um but i feel like that that sense of Mm. we had this Mm -hmm. pressure last year and this especially from like you know, consumers or investors or whomever. And that same pressure has been abated a little bit. And it's just not as intensified. Yeah. And it's not, it's get the priority level is starting That's to shift. That's because it, it's hard. I mean, I don't even think it's being cynical. It, the fact is, I think a lot of it was shallow. Like the, you know, let's let's have more black mm. people in ads mm-hmm. because they're, I did notice that uh, being in advertising and just even being, you know, walking around yes. like just or going on websites and the ads included a lot more people of color. Um, and it, it was often like mm-hmm. not, there wasn't any nuance to it. Either. It was like so, it was so obvious that like what people were doing. Like, <laughs> some mission statements felt very sincere and, and thoughtful, but a lot of them felt very like jumping on the bandwagon. And that's because yeah. it, yeah, absolutely. it is, I think it is shallow for the most part. Um, a lot of it is just to do with like not wanting to be left out um, and not wanting to look bad it's just like PR and like nobody, even though they're, they're, you know, a lot of people argue, okay, like Trump's emboldened people to be more racist. I still think a lot of people like even racists, a lot of them don't want to be called racist. <laughs> like there's still a lot of stigma, <laughs> I guess, in, in mainstream, like kind of civil society, you could argue uh, like, you know, to being an open bigot and 
I think it's more about like not wanting to be considered racist. And I don't know how much of that is even just like, oh, like I, I, I know I'm racist, but I don't want other people to know. I think there's a kind of like self, like there's delusion in there yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a little bit of like, well, I don't want you to call me a racist, but I'm not going to do anything to change the system that actually benefits what? only me. I, I think, think that's a little I bit of self-preservation. Of the, oh God, like, we could talk <laughs> on and on and on about this um, because it's such a complex, it is, it's such a complex <laughs> topic, but I think that one, of the, hard- <laughs> one yes. of the hardest things for people to realize who say they care about, I think maybe like just speaking from like a non-black POC perspective um, or even just like I imagine for a lot of, you know, white people, because I have had conversations with white people about this too, is you have to acknowledge, and this includes, you know, indigenous communities as well, like thinking about the most marginalized, the most, uh, you know, like the, the, com- the communities that have had the most, I think, violence, like institutional violence committed against them historically. If we're going mm-hmm. to re- correct or attempt to correct any wrongs in any kind of deep, serious way, like getting at the roots of things, it will require sacrifice <laughs> on some level to varying degrees for different people. But it, mm. it, I think that's something that maybe isn't talked about enough because there's a lot of like, oh, like, you know, healing, right? We can just heal and we just need love and, yeah. you know, like talking and talking is great, of course, but. I think, you know, from my experience, I've had to ask myself, like, oh, like, but, you know, would I be willing to give something up to someone else? Because I think that's the only way to actually, like, I don't know if this is making sense, but I think you actually have to be willing to give up some level of your your privilege, you know, in order to make things right. Mm-hmm. And... I, I, I feel privileged. Yeah. For sure. I know I have privilege. Because um, most of us do. <laughs> but mm-hmm. some of us have more than others. <laughs> yeah. No, I think you're right. I think that that it's also, I think the reason that nothing has ever really changed is because we are living with this, you know, this mindset of, you know, if if you are not for me, then you must be against me. But then also in order to get what I want, it's only abundance for me, not for anyone else. Uh Um, And I don't know. I mean, there's like, even for me, I'm still, I'm having conversations. Like I actually host now a, um, I co-moderate a a clubhouse room. (laughs) that is about um, healing from trauma for BIPOC people um, through self-care. And one of the things that I actually have had conversations with the other moderator is that you cannot have the same open and authentic conversations of healing if you are in spaces where people who are from the oppressed uh, <laughs> basically white people are also in the same room uh just because they're not gonna fully understand your experience and you're not Mm. and you're gonna feel some level of censure just because they're there um and I totally understand and I totally get it and I 100% agree um but I feel like for me that's that's my point is that if you cannot accept me as broken as I am as you know through the trauma that I've dealt with then how is it that you can even begin to walk the same journey of healing with me if that makes sense um just because I've I mean I've had conversations with you know oh I'm now interested because my partner is black Mm. or I'm now interested because I have a daughter or all of these conversations are like you're now interested because somebody that you know is affected um, which is a great first step, but that doesn't necessarily mean, like you said, that you're willing to sacrifice your privilege 
in order to make way for those other individuals. It just, it sounds like, first of all, I don't know how you found the, find the time. <laughs> Cause uh, yeah, it's, uh, even with the pandemic, it's like my time management is, is, is pretty horrible. Um, but the, yeah, the whole, I think it's, it's, and, and obviously like, people that are more active in the Black Lives Matter movement and, and you know, BIPOC people, people themselves, they understand that it's going to take a lot of work. Like, it's not, it's not going to be sexy. It's not going to be pleasant. Yeah. Well, I mean, it can, like, most of it, I think, is just going to be uncomfortable. And that's another thing with, like, there's the sacrifice mm-hmm. aspect, but there's also, like, well, I guess that would be part of the discomfort. But I, I think the whole, like, kumbaya thing is still I think the way a lot of people think about it like all we need is to like just like hold hands and include everyone right and like just be like lovey-dovey and (laughs) and I think I think people need to understand too that like yeah conflict is not necessarily bad right I think we're yeah yeah I I'm totally of the school of conflict transformation, which is about co- using conflict as an opportunity for growth. But I also agree that it's going to get well, ugly yeah, before it gets better. <laughs> it's going to take a lot of like, you know, oh man, like I, I'm sorry. And how can I be useful? Um, but a lot of that will be like, yeah, sacrifice, discomfort, stepping aside, like you said, making way for other people. And I don't, <laughs> I don't think most people are willing, like, or at that point, you know, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Well, Lily, thank you. On that note. I feel so bad because I think it's just such a downer. <laughs> no, I think, I think it's, it's not, I don't think being real is being down. I think that um, that's just where we are in the world, especially when you are looking at countries that have, you know, are multicultural in the present um, and they have this, uh, this long and deep history that some people would rather, you know, idealize. Um, Cause even for example, I think that a lot of people, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, were so obsessed with going back to normal, going back to normal, even at, you know, even thinking that our normal was super toxic workplaces. It was leadership that would work you to the bone and not give a damn. Um, It was discriminatory behavior practices, like all of these things. Like, I don't understand why would we want to go back to that? But everybody is so obsessed with, oh, we must go back to normal because that's like, I feel like this giant pause that we've had mm. is actually an incredible opportunity for us to reimagine what not just society, but like the future of work, what what we could be doing better when we do go back to some sense of normalcy. Um, but not to say that pre-COVID time was, you know, this idealized sense of self. No, well, it wasn't wasn't for most people. (laughs) It wasn't for most people. And (laughs) I, I hope you're, I hope you, you know, that, like you said, it is, I think it's a great, there is, I believe that too. It's, it's a great time, um, in a way to really rethink and rejig. And I wish I hope that more people think that way about it and are taking the opportunities, you know, um, as they come, but it, it is, it's, it's it's an ongoing thing. (laughs) It's going to be. Yeah. I, I don't, I never say that if you actually are interested in, you know, diversity and inclusion or whatever the, the the words are that this is lifelong work and I think that unless you're actually able to understand that even if you're not willing to be there for the longevity of it but at least understand that that's that's what it's taking it's not just like you know one protest it's not just a year of protest it's like Mm -hmm. 
the longevity of most yeah no that's a that's a very realistic unromantic way of looking at it um (laughs) uh but you know it's well i guess you could look at people like john lewis right like it's it's like right up until the end you know and uh i mean i i uh i'm hopeful overall but you know not (laughs) not for the immediate future but I, I do think it's going to take, uh, yeah, it's yeah. going to take a lot of time and work, but it, it's, it is helpful to meet like-minded people and, and like, you know, you have that group, um, that you moderate, right. That you lead on, um, clubhouse. Mm-hmm. And I think those, <laughs> I think those groups are so essential. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, being real and and I'm I I guess I'm I'm not trying to be cynical I'm just trying to be real same here if you're willing to be real then I'm here (laughs) you're here Um, (laughs) really (laughs) yeah yeah and I mean even the community that you're building I think is so powerful and so um it's and you know even if it's just a few of you that started it eventually will catch on and eventually especially now with everything being online um it's just going to increase that much <laughs> tenfold i hope so um no i i hope so and thank you i appreciate that because it's uh it's a work in progress and i've i've been very lucky so far with the people i've met and the filmmakers who've supported us and it's only uh Upwards from here. Oh, yeah. oh. Is it great? No. <laughs> yes. Well, and your on daughter's this note, is, much happier. Which is a very adorable <laughs> note to end on too. The future, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. oh, I know. Yeah. The closet no, is I'm no sure longer it's very safe. <laughs> yeah, there's got to be something interesting she, going she on. She wants in there. to know where mommy is. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, Lily, thank you so much for speaking with me and we will catch you later. There's an interesting experience that being ethnically ambiguous affords you. Sometimes it's privilege. Sometimes it's not. Because at the end of the day, it's the other person's perception of you that is used to determine that fate. And there's very little you can do about others' perception. Because it will change from person to person based on their experiences, their internalized narratives, and their understanding of the world around them. It wasn't my apathy as a young person that allowed me to go along with another's opinion. It was my intuitive response that I needed to be vigilant and protect myself. I'll give you a different example. When I was 11 or 12, I remember getting dressed for a presentation or some kind of event at school. My normal tomboyish clothes weren't going to cut it, so I put on an ankle-length skirt, which happened to have a slit on the side, which, as soon as I put it on, I found to be uncomfortable, but it was only obvious when you walked and it was maybe to my knee. Now I will preface this by saying I was at the stage of puberty, already developed, physically, curvy and tall for my age, which is probably the reason I hid my body under bulky sweaters, even in Vegas heat. But there was a little incident after school. When I was walking home, I remember feeling a car following along behind me. I turned and looked at a car full of Hispanic men, catcalling me in Spanish from the car. That was already super uncomfortable for my young mind to handle, so I walked away quickly. But the vehicle persisted, slowing down just enough around a corner alongside me that the thought it might stop and they might get out crossed my mind. Then they drove away. 
That encounter and many others molded the way that I moved through the world as a woman, especially my early years, where my mind and body were not in alignment because others' opinions of my body, maybe I looked older than what I was, had them make assumptions of who I might be. The same applied for my ethnicity, my name, my hair, and all of the different identity markers that created my experience, including my generation and cultural events that may have impacted me and my perception of the world. It all consciously or unconsciously molded us. So this week's rose is connecting with amazing people doing work that impacts those around them that are being brave and creating space for themselves and others, especially through story, which is so powerful as a medium. And I've gotten to meet a lot of those on Clubhouse. My thorn. My husband the other day complained that we are always complicated because I need to get background checks during a pandemic from multiple countries in order to apply for a job. And my bud, my response to him was, what's normal to us is someone else's miracle. We've had the opportunity to travel outside of our countries of origin, not just travel, but to live. We met, which wouldn't have happened if I hadn't traveled to China. I mean, he didn't even have a passport when I met him. And we now get to be together as a family, living in the same home in the same city, which after months of being apart throughout our first years of marriage wasn't always easy. And I'll leave you with these words from my favorite book, The Alchemist. When you want something, all the universe conspires in helping you to achieve it which is the law of attraction, manifestation, dreams and prayers answered, or whatever you want to call it, in such a beautiful and simple way. Always remember, when you want something, all the universe conspires in helping you to achieve it. Follow us on Instagram at the way underscore we work or check out the website at www.theway-wework.com. If you have any questions on culture, identity, the spectrum of where we fit in, send an email to thewaywework-official at gmail.com. If you liked the show, make sure to like and subscribe and leave a review. And don't forget to tell your friends to listen.